Hello and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast. Brought to you by Biotechniques, this show brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences, straight from the people exploring them. I'm your host, Biotechniques digital editor, Tristan Free, and on this episode, supported by Zymo Research, we'll be discussing the epigenetic clock. What is it? What's its link to aging? How are researchers using it? And what are some of the key tools available to study it? For those who may be unfamiliar, epigenetics describes the modifications to DNA that alter gene expression without changing the DNA sequence. If you'd like a bit more of an introduction to it, check out some of our episodes on epigenetics on the podcast page of Biotechniques. To give me a real insight into the epigenetic clock is my guest, Keith Boer, Director of Services at Zymo Research, including Aging and Epigenetics Research Services. Keith, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Tristan. It's my pleasure to be here. Coming up, discover the many ways that our behaviours can impact epigenetics. We now know how much exercise we get can directly change the epigenetics in skeletal muscle tissue, for example. So the type of diet we eat, you know, whether it's high in sugar or fats, will change epigenetics in adipose tissue. If we are exposed to a lot of pollution due to, you know, maybe modern urban environments or even certain, you know, workers in factories or coal or coke mines, smokers, all these type of lifestyle factors will alter epigenetics in our bodies. Discover the value of the epigenetic clock in health research and therapeutic development. Using the epigenetic clock, we now have a tool to best identify those interventions or therapies which are having the most impact the fastest. And how the epigenetic clock is beginning to help people reverse their biological age. What was really very interesting and exciting to see is that when they looked at the epigenetic clock in the treatment group recipients, they found that it actually reversed the biological age of these recipients by two and a half years on average. And furthermore, the longer they were on the treatment, the greater the deceleration or reversal of of aging. And this reversed age persisted six months, even after they stopped treatment. So Keith, I think before we get into the details of the epigenetic clock, why don't we talk about the issue that has really brought it into the spotlight recently, which, as I understand it, is the aging populations around the world and the sort of growing age of people all across the globe. So what are some of the key issues that are resulting from these aging populations? Yeah, so I think from a uh, you know, societal standpoint and from the perspective of the healthcare industry, you know, there's clearly an increase in all sorts of chronic diseases associated with aging. So these include things like, you know, instances of all different types of cancers, for example, also neurological disorders, neurodegenerative diseases, such as Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease, also cardiovascular disease. So heart attack and stroke increase, the likelihood of of you having any of those diseases increase as you age. So, you know, as we think about aging populations and societies across the world, so in Europe, of course, the developed countries of Asia, so Japan, South Korea, Singapore, uh, even China, and even to a certain degree here in North America, the burden that will be placed on the healthcare industry in terms of cost and mortality and morbidity is only going to increase as that population increases. So there's a lot of efforts to try to see what can be done to address this issue, you know, as soon as possible, really. And so part of looking to address this issue, a lot of research has been looking to understand the aging process, obviously, and epigenetics has become quite a large part of that field. So can you explain briefly first what epigenetics is? Sure. So as you mentioned right away in the intro, Tristan, a brief definition would be changes in gene expression 
that have occurred and are not attributable to changes in the primary DNA sequence. So these include things like modifications to chromatin, the way our DNA or genome exists in three dimensions, a certain non-coding RNA species, so microRNAs, long non-coding RNAs. And I think the most well understood and most abundantly known epigenetic modification is DNA methylation. So addition of, you know, just single carbon groups onto cytosines and DNA. And so how do these sort of epigenetic markers and processes tie into the aging process? So I think the best way to kind of illustrate this point is to look at, you know, during development. So we all start as a single fertilized cell, a zygote. So during development, the embryo will grow and divide. And, you know, over time, different cell types, different cell lineages are determined. And, you know, as we become living beings, we see that, you know, Although all the cells in our body contain the exact same genetic information, they have diverse and specialized functions. So a skin cell knows it's a skin cell and a heart cell knows it's a heart cell and eye cell and skeletal muscle and so forth due to epigenetic patterns imparted on our genome that allow specific genes to be expressed in time and space. And so I think it's important to keep in mind that throughout the courses of our lives, these epigenetic mechanisms are always in effect and are imparted in response to environmental and you know, lifestyle decisions or choices that we make. So we now know how much exercise we can get can directly change the epigenetics in skeletal muscle tissue, for example. So the type of diet we eat, you know, whether it's high in sugar or fats, will change epigenetics in adipose tissue. If we are exposed to a lot of pollution due to, you know, maybe modern urban environments or even certain, you know, workers in factories or coal or coke mines, smokers, all these type of lifestyle factors will alter epigenetics in our bodies. Interesting. So as someone who's quite interested in fitness and, and health and fitness, what are the kind of observations that you make in epigenetics in sort of say muscle tissue or adipose tissue that come with increased exercise? How does it impact those cells and the DNA within them? There's a lot of studies that have looked at this now. I mean, you can directly take like an experimental group. So people put on a defined exercise regimen for, you know, six to 12 months and then have a control group where, you know, no particular exercise regimen is administered or recommended and then look at muscle tissue and you can directly observe DNA methylations that occur to the exercise group, the treatment group compared to the control and, you know, they're seeing changes in genes, epigenetic changes in genes related to metabolic activity, repair, survival pathways, that sort of thing. Excellent. And so when researchers refer then to the epigenetic clock, so you've mentioned that as we develop, our cells need to specialize, they pick up these epigenetic modifications that help them do so. We then acquire more epigenetic modifications as we go through life and experience different environments and put our body under different stresses. So what is it really that the epigenetic clock encapsulates? Yeah, so I think the connection between, you know, aging and these epigenetic changes and the origination of the clock, it's really just not even 10 years old. So it was in 2013, there were two high-impact papers that came out from researchers at UC San Diego, led by Greg Hannum, and also UCLA, led by Steve Horvath. And what these two separate groups did was they analyzed DNA methylation pattern in literally thousands of different samples, and they found a very strong positive correlation between epigenetic changes and you know, 
chronological age or birth age of the individuals that they studied. So through this analysis of patterns, they could create a mathematical model that could then simply look at those epigenetic patterns and predict someone's age, you know, with greater than 90% accuracy. So it allows you to predict people's age, but then what does that clock, that epigenetic clock tell you about someone's health? How can you use it to infer things about their health? Right. So, you know, for us, for Zymo, from our perspective, when these papers came out, I mean, this was, you know, just this really fascinating phenomenon, right? So there's this connection. And so what does it mean, right? So we, you know, reached out to Steve Horvath. He's right here in our backyard. So in Los Angeles, you know, we're in Southern California and we started collaborating on this topic. Eventually, we negotiated a license with UCLA for a use of these markers in different areas of research. And so, you know, others, you know, beyond Zymo have identified that the utility of a tool that can connect lifestyle changes with the aging process and begun studies to try to see how different dietary influence or or different socioeconomic factors might impact someone's aging. And the idea is by looking at the epigenetic clock, so the set of DNA methylation changes, you know, you could have two people that are say 50 years old, but their biological age could be very different. So someone who's driver's license says they're 50 years old, but their biological age could be, you know, 55 or 60 years old. So this indicates an acceleration of aging for some reason, some environmental reason. And conversely, you could have someone with the same, you know, calendar age of 50, but the biological age is 45. So this indicates a deceleration of the aging process. So with this clock, then we can now start to do studies and say, okay, what kind of environmental factors are contributing to these acceleration or, you know, deceleration of aging. And I think the profound implication is that, you know, with all these different efforts by public health agencies, research institutes, hospitals, you know, even a biotechs and pharmaceutical companies trying to develop these, you know, interventions to help with ease chronic disease associated with aging using the epigenetic clock, we now have a tool to best identify those interventions or therapies which are having the most impact the fastest. And so is there any indication yet as to whether if you are, say, a 50-year-old on your driving license and you come back with a result on your epigenetic clock showing 60 years old in terms of your health, is there any indication as to whether you can reverse that and bring that back towards your actual health or even below it? Or is it what currently showing that it's kind of, that is it, that's set, and all you can do is slow the rate at which it increases? Yeah, that's a great question. So this was a debate for quite some time once the clocks were really defined. So, you know, right away, they can see that some people were aging slower than others. And conversely, others were aging faster than others. And so they could then do these associative studies to look at what types of, you know, dietary or other environmental influences might be accelerating or slowing the clock. So we've mentioned some of these already. So it's pretty intuitive or things you might think that are influencing the rate of aging. So smokers, you know, age faster, people who have higher BMI, blood pressure, you know, poor ratios of low density versus high density lipoproteins or cholesterol. So all these factors have been shown to accelerate aging. On the other hand, you know, people who have diets high in fruits, vegetables, poultry, and fish, have slower rates of aging. So I think that's not too surprising, right? So, you know, from when we're kids, we're taught to eat your fruits and vegetables. But I think what is surprising from those studies is that of those four, so fruits, vegetables, poultry, and fish, actually it turns out that fish was the greatest contributor to a deceleration, a slowing of the aging clock. So though some of this stuff we might think is 
it's quite intuitive, but we know, I think with the clock, we can really pinpoint those factors that contribute the most and then also discover new ones. It's interesting you mentioned that fish was the one that was found to be kind of the biggest impact, because I think always it comes back to with any kind of like diet science that that Mediterranean diet. And then you also have the fact that the Japanese kind of have the highest life expectancy in their population as well. And they're eating a lot of fish in their typical diets. But you mentioned some of those new approaches and new experiments that are occurring at the moment. Could you fill us in on some of them? Yeah, right. So, so, so you mentioned, you know, how can we slow or decelerate just prior to this, right? Or reverse epigenetic clock, I should say. So again, so that was a debate. So this is, you know, certain lifestyle factors for decelerating or slowing the clock, but can we reverse it, right? So then this is now that we know the clock exists and we understand, you know, some of the basic rules governing that clock. So is there any intervention that can actually reverse that clock? And so, you know, even Steve Horvath for a long time, the founder of, you know, a lot of the principles describing this phenomenon thought, you know, this is just not possible. Like, However, just very recently, a study led by Greg Fahey and his team, again, here in Southern California, where they were actually trying to slow or reverse some of the immune function decline associated with atrophy of the thymus that's known to occur in elderly. And so what they did was they administered a three-drug cocktail that included the drug metformin, a human growth hormone, and a DHEA. They administered this to subjects over the age of 50 and monitored their thymic function for the treatment group compared to the control group. And so they did indeed find that a rejuvenation of the thymus, and that was associated with improved immune function. But what was really very interesting and exciting to see is that when they looked at the epigenetic clock in the treatment group recipients, they found that it actually reversed the biological age of these recipients by two and a half years on average. And furthermore, the longer they were on the treatment, the greater the deceleration or reversal of of aging. And this reversed age persisted six months, even after they stopped treatment. So it was a small scale study on a defined group of patients. So it's just one in the, you know, it would have to be verified and validated much larger experimental group. But I think the implication is clear with, with this, you know, at least this initial study, there is a possibility that indeed the clock can be reversed. It's very encouraging to hear then that that's something that's not set in stone. So that's a case of like the pharmacological kind of interventions bringing it back. Do you think that by changing lifestyle behaviors and changing the stresses that you're putting your body on, is there any indication at the moment that that's something that could reverse the clock? Or again, is that just slowing it? It's not known right now. Right. But again, you know, with a tool like the epigenetic clock, I mean, this is really the power of it. So we now have a method to really test this kind of stuff. So if you said, you know, what kind of exercise, you know, if there's even a debate like, oh, you need to do more weightlifting and and strength training or resistance exercise. And, you know, some people say, no, it's cardiovascular is the more important. And others say, well, you don't want to even do too intense because this could have detrimental. And so it used to be something more leisurely, like go for a hike or just do some gardening. Well, now we have a tool, we can actually test that, right? We can set up experiments and give people different exercise treatment courses, and we can see which one has the greatest impact on the epigenetic clock. And, you know, who knows, maybe if we start to make improvements and learn more, we may one day come to a course that could even, you know, do so much as reverse some of the damage that accumulates over time. Fascinating. It'd be uh, very very interesting and also I think quite satisfying to receive a workout plan or a, a fitness plan that's been proved by science to actually make the biggest difference to your health. That'd be quite a development. So in conducting some of this research and trying to get towards that kind of level of understanding, what are some of the challenges that you come across? I think, you know, one thing is 
just, you know, recruiting patient, recruiting study participants. It's a lot of the same things you get with any kind of, you know, clinical study, drug trial. But I want to emphasize, so it's not a technical challenge at this point, right? So a lot of the efforts that we've done at Zymo, we've, you know, improved methods to help bring the cost down to administering these types of studies. So, you know, the advances in sequencing technology, so we can move beyond, you know, the original technology platform used to build these clocks was based on older array technology. But with next generation sequencing, we can generate data for much cheaper and much faster than was previously possible and really make this technology available to, you know, not just researchers, hospitals, pharmaceutical companies, but even to the average person who may want to look at their biological age on their own. So Zymo spun off a company that offers this product for a direct consumer marketplace. It's called MyDNH. So, you know, anyone can look it up on the internet and, you know, place an order and you know, receive a test kit at their home. And just with a, either a blood, just a few drops of blood or a urine sample, can send that back to the lab and get a report on their own biological or epigenetic age. And so you mentioned then some of the technological developments that have brought this into something where you can now use it so freely and you can use it in those sort of more consumerist spaces as well. So what are some of those developments in next generation sequencing and what are some of the technologies that are really helping improve this field? Yeah. So, you know, Horvath and Hannum, you know, for the original, the original clocks, the original publications, you know, again, they use array technology and arrays are fine. They're great, you know, research tools, but with sequencing, what that newer technology brings is a lot of, you know, number one, reduced costs and increased throughput, right? You just get a lot more data with the most advanced platforms but also it allows a flexibility. So at the rays, you know, you have a fixed set of genes that you're looking at, but with sequencing, we can look at different genes, different regions, non-coding regions, as the science develops or new genes or epigenetic loci are implicated in aging, we can add those to the panel or if some drop out, you know, we can modify which epigenetic markers we're looking at in our test. And we can do it on the fly and, you know, always have the most up-to-date profile of what's going to give us the most information about our biological age. And so where are the main developments in this field coming from? You've mentioned obviously Horvath and UCLA. So is it mostly coming from academia, this side of things, or is there also a big part that industry is playing? Yeah, I think that academia is really driving this right now. So, you know, so Horvath, he has his his markers. He's, he's pretty well defined. There's other, you know, David Sinclair at Harvard University. He's one of the worldwide, I think, leaders in the field of aging research. And, you know, they've, you know, we partnered with them to look at ribosomal DNA methylation and how those changes can reflect changes in, in epigenetic aging or biological aging. I think, you know, some really interesting areas of development is we're now moving beyond just looking at humans or even just experimental lab mice or even mammals in general. So, you know, we can now look at environmental changes in the marine ecosystem, for example. So a group in Saudi Arabia was looking at DNA methylation changes in clownfish and how this they respond to environmental stresses like ocean acidification, increasing temperatures, and how that might impact their epigenetic age. We also, Zymo, we participated with a group right there in the UK, Tristan, who was looking at a lobster epigenetic age. And they use this to help us support a healthy fisheries, you know, so they don't get over overfished and, and, you know, this could have harmful effects to the marine ecosystem. So the field is, is growing in all sorts of ways. And, you know, it's just really exciting. And it's almost too hard to predict what direction, you know, these things will go. 
And lobsters are quite an interesting species to study in in terms of aging, aren't they? Because I think, and I might be getting this slightly wrong, but aren't they technically immortal almost in that they only die if they get a disease or are predated or die of a fight or something, but they could theoretically continue to live forever? I must admit, I don't know the answer to that. I haven't studied lobsters in details, but what I can say is that for this research group that we worked with, the challenge or the question they were asking is that it's very hard to age lobsters. So they are known to be very long lived, you know, relative to a lot of other marine species. And a lot of people think, oh, you just look at the size and that that tells you how old they are. But apparently that's not true. So you can have lobsters of two different sizes and they're just, they could have the same age. And so if you're just going purely on size, you're not really going to accurately capture the average age of the population. So something, another sort of tool, another measurement is really needed to really keep accurate track of what the healthy ecosystem looks like in, in that environment. Excellent. Well, I should probably add that I'm very hesitant to stand by that point. It's something that I have locked in the back of my head that just came up, but I might need to fact check whether or not lobsters are are indeed (laughs) immortal. So you've talked about then some of the applications and how wide this field is spreading. Where do you see it developing then in the next five years, say? You know, doing large scale clinical trials and testing, you know, biological age change is going to support a lot of these efforts. So there's for a long time, you know, we mentioned briefly the drug metformin a moment ago. So there's a large, there's a large scale trial going on right now for, to look at, you know, if it can have a a positive impact on healthy aging. So if we can add epigenetic age measurement to those trial participants, I think it'll bolster results of the findings. So here at Zamo Research, we're partnering with stroke researchers to help to try to predict the prognosis for stroke recovery following injury. And, you know, we're incorporating biological age as a marker to perhaps help identify those patients that are, you know, good candidates for different types of intervention, physical therapy, occupational speech therapy following stroke. So using this tool, you know, we just, we hope to be able to accelerate you know, advances or breakthroughs in, in all sorts of different fields related to you know, chronic disease and, and others. And so you've mentioned that really with the technology, there are a few limitations left with it at this stage. But if there was anything that you could ask for to improve your understanding of the epigenetic clock, what would it be? And you can go as, as broad as you'd like. If I was a genie who could grant a wish, what would it be? Just more data, right? Just more data. So the more we explore this area, the more we're learning. So we started with human and, you know, a few hundred defined loci, you know, fast forward, not even 10 years later, we now expanded to, you know, Zymo. When we're doing our tests, we're looking at literally thousands of loci and we have, you know, the increased amount of, of information just makes a much more robust clock. So before people thought, you know, oh, we could just identify things that slow the clock. We now know that you know, it certainly looks like reversal of the epigenetic clock is possible. And we just, you know, the more data we get, the more we're going to understand the connection, you know, really what's going on at the molecular level, connecting the aging process with epigenetic change. So the sky's the limit, I think at this point, we just need to get data and see what's going on. And Keith, what are some of the areas in the field at the moment that you look at and you think are really exciting? So I think for aging intervention, you know, probably the single most exciting area is this idea of cellular reprogramming. So using these, the so-called Yamanaka transcription factors to reprogram cells. And through this cellular reprogramming, the idea is we can rejuvenate 
older or damaged tissues. And again, you know, David Sinclair, I mentioned him briefly, he's one of the leaders in this area, but there are certainly others. And what Sinclair's group has done, and, and we assisted him with some of this research, is really connecting the beneficial effects from this tissue reprogramming and showing that epigenetics is indeed a key component that is required for this you know, beneficial tissue rejuvenating effect to occur. And you know, I think this is one of the most promising areas and really shows the power of, of you know, using a tool like epigenetics to connect to actual functional interventions and you know, have the most beneficial outcomes that can really help society. Well, Keith, it's been great to hear about the impact of this field in exercise, health, drug development, ecology. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your expertise. It's been my pleasure, Tristan. It was a really great to talk to you. Thank you. If you would like to find out more about aging and the epigenetic clock, you can get more information from our in focus on epigenetics and aging over on www.biotechniques.com. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to find more, you can check out the podcast section of the site or follow at SciTristan on Twitter for regular updates and threads on our latest episodes. Also, unfortunately, after a brief fact check, I can confirm that lobsters are not immortal. Thank you for listening and goodbye.